0: Good morning. I want to add my greeting to Drew's. I'm Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here and it's very nice to see you. Now, I don't know if you can tell, but I got out in the sun yesterday and um, if I pass out, it's just from the pain. Uh, those of you who um, God gave you an ugly head and covered it up, uh, you don't know that this is the worst place to get a, a sunburn by far. And um, I really think I could cry right now, (laughs) but I'm going to try not to, and uh, we'll see how this goes. For the last four months, our church has been reading through the Gospel of John. It's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus, and this amazing book, with all of its beautifully written scenes. It's scenes of comedy and drama and tragedy. This amazing book reaches its climax with a fairly straightforward, bare bones description of Jesus' crucifixion. It's the opposite if you've seen Mel Gibson's movie of The Passion of the Christ, it's shorn of almost all kind of emotional punch, it doesn't dwell. On the brutal, physical, torturous reality of the cross. It just names it. And then, the meaning that John draws from this fairly unremarkable event. uh, Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified in that day and age by the Romans. The meaning that John draws from this unremarkable event described in an unremarkable way is nothing less than explosive. So what John does as a literary technique is he kind of just plainly names the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then he unpacks out of it explosive meaning. John's gospel claims, and so many of us in this room, in this church, we've accepted the claim. He claims... That 2,000 years ago, just outside the city walls of Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth was brutally executed by a Roman governor. And yet, by 6 o'clock on that dark Friday evening, the world was a different place. When Jesus died, in other words, something happened, a result of which... The world actually changed. The fabric of reality changed. This world turned a corner. It was a different place. And the first sign of the difference, the first sign of the difference came on the third day when somebody rose back from the dead. That was the, f- the first manifestation of this different reality we live in. Somehow, some way, the darkest and strongest powers in the world, the power of death itself, somehow, some way, through the death of Jesus, that power, the strongest power, the darkest power in our world, was broken. And a new reality. Came to birth. Now this is strange. And this is really hard to wrap our mind around. So we often cheat. And we reduce the cross to much easier things to believe. Like forgiveness of sins and escape to heaven. All true. But you got to go farther than that. As Christians we buy into something much bigger Much more hard to believe than that. We believe that on that Friday afternoon, something happened, a result of which death's power was actually broken. And the first manifestation of that was that somebody comes back from the dead. And this morning, as we turn our attention, not to the climax of John's gospel, but to the epilogue. The outworking of the climax. As we turn our attention to John chapter 21, we see that the culmination, not the climax, but the culmination of this entire amazing book, this great final chapter of John's gospel, it shifts our attention away from the climactic death and resurrection to the awesome task of the church. That flows like the water from the side of Christ. That's what John does. He reaches this massive climax focused on Jesus. Unpacks it to mean this hard to realize, hard to understand, hard to grasp thing. That the world has turned a corner. That death is broken. That new creation is breaking in. And then the whole thing culminates in the church. Really hard for us living here 50 years into massive institutional scandals, whether it's on political or corporate or church levels. Hard for us to wrap our minds around a shift to an institution. Here as Americans who have really good reasons to give up on institutions, to be skeptical of institutions, to try to turn every institution into a voluntary association, But John won't let us do that. John makes a beeline from the cross to the church. And in John chapter 21, we see that the job of the church, the responsibility of the church, the mission of the church, is to implement the victory that Jesus achieved on the cross and in the resurrection. So Jesus... Achieved a victory. Cross and the resurrection. And then the church is tasked with the responsibility of implementing that victory. So if you have a Bible, find the end of John's Gospel, chapter 21. It's a passage that Drew read to us just a couple of moments ago. And in this chapter... I want to walk through seven lessons for our church, for the Church of the Incarnation, today, in this moment, in this place. Seven lessons that are necessary for us if we are going to fulfill our responsibility to implement the achievement That Christ won in his crucifixion and resurrection. All right, so John chapter 21. It begins with a fishing trip. Followed by breakfast. And then a painful conversation. And the fundamental issue that John is communicating is that it is the responsibility of the church to do two things. There are two dimensions to this working out of the victory. The task of the church is two dimensional, it is both pastoral and missionary. Both. Let's start with the missionary responsibilities. Of the church. This comes out in the fishing expedition with the miraculous catch of fish. And the role of this story in John's gospel is to depict symbolically the church's mission of bringing people to faith in Jesus and new life as children of God. Now, you know this. If you've grown up in the church, you know one of the things Jesus said to his followers is, I will make you fishers. Of men. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you know that. And John wrote his gospel 50 years after the events. After Matthew, after Mark, after Luke. And he, and he expects you to be very familiar with those moments where Jesus symbolically depicted evangelism as fishing. And John's gospel culminates in a fishing trip. This has already been front-loaded with meaning. The symbol of fishing in the Gospels represents evangelism. Look at verse 15. Because evangelism is not the only job of the church. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, feed my lambs. And look at the end of the next verse where Jesus tells Peter, tend my sheep. And at the end of verse 17, where Jesus tells him, feed my sheep. So he shifted metaphors, right? Shifted symbols from fishing to what? Shepherding. Is this notion shepherding? Does it ever come up in the Bible? Yes. Is it also a symbol that's been jam-packed with meaning? Yes. And this is the pastoral function of the church. It's a different symbol. The symbol of the shepherd whose job is to feed people with what? Well, in John's gospel, who is the bread? Who is the water? John chapter 6, Jesus is. So what is the job of the church here? It is to lead people to the bread that is life. Christ himself, to feed people with Jesus because Jesus in his being and in his words, he is the food. We have to nurture one another in the right direction. As a church, we have a responsibility to help one another grow towards a greater love for Jesus and a greater trust in Jesus. So in John chapter 21, think about this. The church is given two symbols, fishing and shepherding. This represents the missionary work of the church. And the pastoral, discipling, nurturing work of the church. And the first of the seven lessons we find in the last chapter of John for us as a church is that if we're going to be faithful to our responsibilities in Harrisonburg, we must be both missionary and pastoral. And the separation of these always leads to distortion. Now, some of you come from churches and traditions and perspectives and experiences that make you prejudice against evangelism. And some of you come from places in life that make you think the only job of the church is evangelism. And do you see how here in the culminating last moment of John's gospel, we're not allowed to give up either one of these tasks. Evangelism is a terrible word in our culture. I cringe every time I say it. I think this is being recorded. People are going to listen to this. Then haven't we learned anything from colonialism? Isn't being missionary and evangelistic isn't this a power move? Isn't this terrible? Well, maybe the way it's been done is, but that doesn't mean we can throw it out. Your parents abused you? It doesn't mean you can't be a parent. Parent well. Learn lessons. We have to do both. I believe that we as a church, by the grace of God, have been really good at the second and not very good at the first. I believe that by God's grace, we've been able to help people to grow in their love for Jesus. Many, many people say to me, My love for the Lord is growing at incarnation, some way or another. But not nearly as many people say to me, I have discovered Jesus was my heart's desire and I never knew it. In the cross and resurrection, the great jailer of our world has been overpowered and we have been commissioned by Jesus to go out into the world and unlock the prison doors. And we've got to get better at it. As a church, we need to pray that God will increase in us this grace. That we will do both. Okay, so a fundamental lesson in John chapter 21 is that we are to be both missionary and pastoral. Secondly, our responsibility as a church can only be achieved if we do this both Corporately and personally. Look at John chapter twenty-one, verse one. After this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way: Simon Peter, Thomas called the Twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of His disciples were together. Simon said, "I'm going fishing." This symbol for the missionary work of the church. And they said, we will be with you. And they went out and got into the boat, dropped down to the end of verse 6. So they, corporate, plural, cast their net. And they caught so many fish, they weren't able to haul it in. Remember, fishing is John's in John's gospel functions as a symbol of this task of the church. And here, it is clearly portrayed as a corporate, Activity. And then in the whole conversation going on between Jesus and Peter, where Jesus gives Peter a job to do to shepherd Jesus' flocks, this is Jesus giving Peter the office of pastor, the first pastor of the first church. And, And it's an office of an institution. A flock is a group, and there's somebody tasked with the group the institution has an officer. So on the one hand, for the church to fulfill its task of implementing the victory achieved by Jesus in his death and resurrection, we have to function as an institution, as a group. The institutional church is the gathered church, organized under its officers and ministers for worship and discipleship and evangelism. But John chapter 21 also has an intensely personal dimension. Jesus says to Peter in verse 22, you, singular, you follow me. Each of us, not just, see, as a church, we've got to keep Jesus at the center, but so do you as an individual. Each one of us, personally, we are to follow Jesus. Every single one of us, from Shea to Susanna, we follow Jesus as individuals, as, per, as people. We are to follow him where? Into every nook and cranny of your life. Where? Outside the walls of this church. We are to follow him out of this building into society. How do we move out into society from here? In three basic ways. As neighbors, as workers, and as citizens. So you've got to figure out where is the Christ leading you as a neighbor? Where is the Christ leading you as a worker? What is the relationship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection to your vocation? And we follow him as citizens. And we've got to get really good at thinking of all three of these parts of our lives. What it means to be a citizen of this community. What it means to be a worker. And if you can't think through The relationship of the cross and the resurrection to citizenship, to working, to your particular job, and to your particular house, then you have not yet followed Christ. You have to follow him into all of these areas. Each of us in all the particularity and ordinariness of our lives, we follow Jesus as agents of new creation, laboring for justice and beauty and renewal wherever our hands, our houses, our work, and our citizenship leads us. And when you begin to see this, it opens up all of creation. Every square inch, there are millions of things that the church, as an organism, has to get on with doing through each one of us. There are millions of things that we should be getting into. Jesus has all kinds of projects up his sleeve, and he's waiting for faithful people to say their prayers, to read the signs of the time, and to get to it. So John's gospel culminates in this emphasis on the church's task as both missionary and pastoral, personal and corporate. Thirdly, we have to always remember that when we're working for Jesus, it needs to be under his direction, right? Fishing. The symbol in John's gospel for the responsibility of the church to bring people to faith in Jesus and new life as children of God. Look what happens in verse 3. John chapter 21 verse 3. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Nothing. Labor all night, right? Fishing. Look, you don't have to have a PhD in English literature to get the point going on here. So they they work hard at this thing that up until now is a symbol. They work as hard as they can at it. Then Jesus shows up on the shore and says, hey, throw the net on the other side. They do, and they catch a bunch of fish. Now, again, you don't have to have a bachelor's degree in English literature to get the point here. Isn't the point fairly obvious? If we try to do work for Jesus on our own, no matter how noble the work is, we'll fail. We'll toil all night and catch nothing. The only way for us is to admit defeat, listen afresh for the voice of Jesus, and do what he says. And then there's no telling what we'll accomplish. What projects that are good things that would contribute to the flourishing of our community? To the flourishing of your family? To the flourishing of your neighborhood? What things have you been laboring over but getting nowhere with? The third lesson in John is, when it comes to living as a Christian, look for the dawn. Watch for the figure on the shore. Listen for his voice. And do what he says. Fourth. As we participate in the work of the church. In the work of God's people in the world, we are not responsible for everything that needs to be done. Now, this is a thing that everybody, I'm sure, in your mind can say, sure, obviously. But it's right here. It's a point that is made at the end. It's not just a general principle. It's one of the last things John, John's gospel tells us because this is a temptation we face over and over. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So here's Jesus. He's already cooking fish, he doesn't need their catch. He's well capable. Of catching fish. And then he asks his disciples to bring some that they've caught. A fourth lesson for our church is that we do not have to do everything that needs to be done, both corporately or individually. It's so easy, isn't it? The moment your heart is awakened to injustice, to poverty, To people who aren't a part of God's kingdom. Isn't it so easy to then take on the responsibility of every need you encounter? It's so easy for us to to take on a Messiah complex. To think that we've got to get it done. It's so easy for us to imagine that God is waiting on us to save the world. To think that if we don't organize it, it won't happen. To think that if we don't tell people the good news, they won't hear it. If we don't change the world, it won't change. There's a saying in the church. He has no hands but our hands. And that is a complete load of rubbish. Whose hands made the sun rise this morning? Whose breath guides us to think and to pray and to love and to hope? Who is the Lord of this world? Jesus welcomes the disciples' catch. They labor all night. They finally get a massive catch. They show up and Jesus has already got fish. He's good. But he asks us to bring some of it. Of course, as a church and as individuals, we've got to work hard for the kingdom. Of course, we need to be organized. There is no excuse for laziness or sloppiness or half-hearted work in God's kingdom. If it's God we're working for, do it with all your might. But be very, very careful that as a church, we don't act like we're the only church in this town. That we're the only witness. We're not. Anglicanism isn't the only way to be a Christian. It's a great way, but not the only way. There are many ways to be Christian. There are many rich traditions in this town that bring out the bread of life to this community. And you are not the only one. If you can't go to sleep at night, trusting that what you couldn't get done, God's got to deal with that, then there's all manner of of manifestations that are going to flow out of that in your life. Overwork, worry, anxiety. See, our problem, early in John, we saw Peter struggled with the foolish assumption that he would save the Savior. And that's our problem for some of us. As pragmatic, workaholic, triumphalistic Americans, we've got to resist the fear inducing notion, the guilt inducing notion that we are responsible for every need. When you give into that foolishness, you turn into a jerk. An abuser of people. You coerce and you manipulate and you use guilt and fear to cajole people into meeting the needs that you are burdened for. And when those people fail to meet your agenda, when they fail to satisfy your expectation, you get angry at them or you write them off. That's the fourth lesson for us as a church. We must always remember that we are not responsible for the whole kettle of fish, Jesus is the Lord. He carries that responsibility. Number five. As we, the church of the incarnation, as we work to implement in this particular community the victory that Jesus won on the cross and in his resurrection, as we do this, we must learn that everything we do for Jesus must come from a place of love. It must flow out of love. We see this in the almost unbearably tense dialogue between Peter and Jesus. And it all begins with the smell of charcoal. Look at verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire. This isn't the first charcoal fire in John's gospel. It's the second. The first one occurred on that dreadful night. Right next to Peter. When he denied Jesus three times. It explicitly says he was next to a charcoal fire. Don't you know that smell and memory go so closely together? Jesus, Peter, he's so excited to see Jesus. He jumps, he, he swims to shore, and then the, the smell that hits him. You got to know. It triggered all his shame. All of his profound failure. Here he is once again. With the smell of charcoal in his nostrils. Face to face with the friend he had betrayed and abandoned. Once again. He's asked a question three times, just like he was before. Same question, three times. Three times Jesus presses the simple but painfully searching question, do you love me? What's Jesus doing? He's gently exposing a deep, unhealed wound in Peter. And he's dealing with it in love and prayer so that Peter can at last find healing. This is a conversation between an individual and Jesus. We call that prayer. You see, there are some things that not even the resurrection itself can wave a magic wand over and get rid of the memory. Nothing could do that. Except revisiting the failure and bathing it in God's healing love. So, look, do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do do you believe that he cares? For you, even though he knows about the affair, the pornography, the stealing, the cowardliness, the the manipulation, the betrayals, the abuse, the failure, the greed, the theft, the lying. Jesus goes there with peter he doesn't sweep it under the rug he goes there he confronts it he he lights a charcoal fire and asks a question three times in a row that provokes the memory and then you notice what he does he gives him a responsibility He actually gives Peter the responsibility of shepherding the flock, which is the responsibility Jesus said he had earlier. He said, I am the good shepherd. He gives it to this jerk. This is the secret of laboring for Christ in his kingdom. If you are going to do any single solitary thing for Jesus... Learning how to work as an accountant for Jesus. Dating for Jesus. Raising children for Jesus. Navigating our intensely complicated political structures for Jesus. If you're going to do any single solitary thing for Jesus, it must be built on love for Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? Not, what did you do? Not... Look how bad you messed up. But Peter, below your failure, I know there was love. What a gracious thing to look at somebody when they're covered in rubbish, right? And to say, Peter, I know it. That's what Peter says at the end. You know it, Lord. That was the moment where Peter says, You know that behind my betrayal there was some love for you? And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Okay, here's a massive job. Here's a hugely important job. But it has to be built on that love, Peter. Even though you have let him down more times than you can count, he wants to lead you to find that love and to give you a chance to express it. To heal the hurts and the failures of the past. And he wants to give you beautiful things that you can do for him. It's not like all these good works we do as Christians. It's not like we're doing them to curry favor with Jesus. No, we're doing them because he forgives us. And he loves us. And he cares for us. And we love him back. Don't you love him? And so week after week, we gather gather in this room to pour out our love and our admiration on his feet. Like Mary. To Jesus who laid down his life for us. And then day after day we set aside time each morning to get very still and very quiet. To behold his face. And like the beloved disciple at the last supper. To lay our head on his bosom. To whisper to him the secrets of our heart. And to enter into that silence. That nuptial silence that's the fruit of his presence. That's the fifth lesson. To faithfully fulfill our task as a church. Everything we do must flow from the love we have for the crucified and risen Jesus. And six. The sixth lesson for our church in this passage. For our church is that each one of us as individuals and we as a church has a particular role to fulfill. The purpose of john chapter twenty one is to show us that the victory achieved in the death and resurrection of Jesus is to be implemented by his church, and to do this, we have to know that it 's both missionary and personal um, missionary and pastoral it 's corporate and personal We have to listen for the voice. Of the Lord. And do what he tells us. We have to resist the temptation. To think that it all depends on us. And whatever we do. It has to be rooted in. And flow out of love. And it also. Must be unique. Each of us. Has a unique role to play. That's what's going on. Jesus is saying to Peter. Look look what he says. Peter's turned in verse 20. And saw the disciple whom Jesus' loved Following the one who had been reclining at table. Close to him and said. Lord is this. Who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said, that's none of your business. You follow me. Isn't this hard? Some of you that are in college, there are people you're sitting next to in class that are going to go on to fame and fortune. And not you. Some of you ladies in college, you're gonna have friends who get their heart's desire, and not you. Some of you guys will never get to be bald. (laughs) Peter, don't worry about him. You follow me. I've got a job for you. Look. God made every single one of us as an unrepeatable uniqueness. And your job is to let the Lord, the good shepherd, lead you on that incredibly difficult inward journey. So that by his light and his grace, you can become the unrepeatably unique person he made you to be. And then bring that, the gift of you, to the world. That's your job. is to become yourself. And to be a school teacher, not in general, but the way you are supposed to be a school teacher. My dad's a pastor, my grandfather, my uncle, my brother-in-law, my brother. It's like family business. And my job is not to be jealous of my brother. It's not to try to be a pastor like D my grandfather or and this is such a hard job isn't it you you wake up in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s and I guess maybe in your 50s 60s 70s and you discover you've been wearing a mask the whole time and you didn't even know it this is such a difficult journey and it's the same for us as a church and right now we're at a moment in our church's life where this is exactly what our job is it is to figure out what is our role in this city And for six years, we've been led very clearly by a very clear image of what we were supposed to be. And now that is changing. It's it's, it's happening to us as a church just like it's happened to some of you in your life. Some of you, you've been going through life and suddenly you get this curveball and everything changes. The diagnosis of cancer, the layoff from the job, the unexpected pregnancy, the inability to get pregnant. This is how it is to walk with God in this world. And our job right now is in this season as a church is to discern who we're supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. So what do we do? We listen close. We say our prayers. We look for the dawn. And we see the man on the shore. And we follow him. Seventh. Seventh lesson for us as we Live out of the cross and the resurrection here in this town. Look what Jesus said to Peter in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. A lot of weird things going on in this chapter with clothing, right? Peter's naked at the beginning of the chapter working. Because it's hard work. He's taken off his shirt. It's hard work. But then he oddly puts on his clothes to dive into the ocean. Right? That feels to me like the opposite of what we should do. And then he gets to the shore. And then at the end. At the end of a story that already has had people being dressed and undressed. Jesus in his birth is wrapped in swaddling clothes. On the cross he's stripped all through the gospels. There's this weird stuff going on with clothing. And then it all summarizes in the end with suffering. This is the sixth lesson. There's no way for us as a church to follow the Lord Jesus or you as an individual apart from suffering. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of our Lord. And there's a deep mystery there and I've run out of time. But let me just say this. In one of Paul's epistles, he says that his sufferings are filling up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. I've preached on this many times in the past. I just want to say it again. We participate in the redemptive work of Christ through suffering. As individuals and as a church. We're a Christian church. Our calling is to follow Jesus and this will be costly because Jesus' own work was costly. In the week that I've prepared this sermon, more Christians have been killed around the world simply for worshiping Jesus. Someone else will dress you and take you where you would rather not go, Peter. And he said this to tell him the manner of his death. What's going to be the manner of your death, your vocational death, your parenting death? Your erotic death. Your, your, your deep desire for spouse. What's going to be the manner of your deaths? Well, as a Christian, you're in Christ. And so your deaths can glorify God. That's what he was telling Peter. We are sent into the world. And we are sent into the world. Because the world... Is the object of God's love. It is the reason Jesus died. He was sent into the world by the Father. In John chapter 20 he says. He sends us into the world. And whatever part we're called to play. We go with the words ringing in my ear, our ears. You'll have trouble in this world. But cheer up. I've defeated this world. Let's pray.